grad student. Does anybody feel like we're kind of in that part of the semester? It's almost like a Wednesday, right? Because Wednesdays are like hump day, hump day. Anyways, I feel like I'm trying to get over that like beginning of the middle semester sludge and I'm just like kind of going through it. If that's you too, I see you. But mostly I'm happy to bring you today's episode to help you over the hump day, the hump moment of the semester, if you will. But before we get to today's episode, I'm so excited to announce that for those of you who are podcast patrons or anybody who signs up between now and February 24th, will get to join Dear Grad Student for the first ever Patreon writing group. Now, it's not that I'm trying to be exclusive and not have people as part of this writing group, but rather it's just for the group of people who specifically want a grad school community, who listen to Dear Grad Student regularly, even if you only want to contribute one dollar a month to this podcast you can do so at patreon.com slash dear grad student and we have a writing group coming up february 24th that's a friday 2 p.m eastern standard time to 4 p.m eastern standard time if you're a patron i hope you're there if you're not a patron i hope you sign up and you're there and we can hang out and it'll be great and for those of you following me on social media you will know that i have finished the first draft of a book wow who is she but what that also means is that as part of that hobby i have released some new merch so you can find this merch mostly on redbubble you can find the link to redbubble at deargradstudent.com merch you can also get dear grad student merch stickers are less than two bucks you can also find mugs you can find notebooks you can find t-shirts sweatshirts etc etc all of it's at deargradstudent.com merch or you can search dear grad student all one word on redbubble.com but today's episode is a really fun one and i'm super excited to get into it so let's get to it Today's episode is all about why art is vital to the study of science with third-year PhD student Maranki Harris. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to your favorite grad school podcast, Dear Grad Student, the podcast where grad students can come together to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through this long and difficult journey. I'm Alana. I'm a sixth-year doctoral candidate and your host, and I'm joined today by a third-year PhD student who studies the interconnected world of mining, microbes, and 3D modeling and mapping, Maranki Harris. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Spoiler for everyone listening, I feel like this is going to be one of the most interesting episodes I do just based on what you do. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Well, I find what I do incredibly interesting, so I'm glad you do too. (laughs) You know what? I love that because I think that sometimes we forget how cool the stuff we do is. And so I love that you're like, no, what I do is really cool. Like it is. I believe it's true. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you're going to devote multiple years to it, you better find it pretty cool. Uh, retweet. On that note, let's go ahead and give you a shout out on social media so listeners know where to find you online. So where can people connect with you? So my website is my name, maronkaharris.com. And I'm also on all social media platforms at Imaginative Sci. So that's Imaginative followed by S-C-I. And I'm also on Twitter at Harris as well. Perfect. And of course, longtime listeners will know everything will be linked in the description for today's episode. And as always, and particularly for this episode, I think, you know, I like to give some background into what people research, what area they're coming from. But it also, I think, gives a background into the person before we get chatting on our topic. But today's topic is really intertwined with what you do for research and what you do in grad school. So why don't we just start at the beginning? You know, what is your thing? What do you do in grad school? You know, what's the passion? So I study hydrothermal vents. So they are basically hot springs on the seafloor. They exist between 1,000 and 4,000 meters deep under the ocean surface. I combine 3D modeling and mapping to determine where biopharmaceutical potential concerning micro-biopharmaceutical potential is. It's getting too convoluted. No, it's amazing. I'm like blown away. (laughs) So the earth is venting it in the ocean, right? Like we're talking like... The Earth's crust is like farting. Um, essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess breathing is another word, but I'm like, it's gas, right? Yeah, are, Sorry, I'm five years old. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> so there are just cracks in the sea floor where superheated fluid pops up through those cracks. And that fluid can reach up to 400 degrees Celsius. And 
as that fluid is passing through the seafloor and goes into the ambient ocean water, it gets infused with a lot of metals and minerals that are in the seafloor crust. Whoa. That's what forms the hydrothermal vent structure. Just those metals and minerals precipitating out of that superheated water as it combines with the really cold deep water and forming chimney structures. Yeah. So I have two question follow-ups. Are these underwater volcanoes? Pretty much, yeah. Um, okay. Colloquially, you could say an underwater volcano is the most simple way of describing what a hydrothermal vent is. Okay. You know, like rectangles and squares, like a square is a rectangle, but rectangles not a square. Like, are there underwater volcanoes that are not the vents? I'm not sure, actually, because I focus specifically on vents. On the vents. So there could yes, be. Yes. But I don't know that. Maybe I'll have to that. bring you back on with like a volcano scientist. Yeah. And we could like really dive deep. Okay, so then my other question is, you mentioned that it like creates these like chimney-like structures. Is this like millions and billions of years ago, like would this, or I guess in the future, would these become islands and like land eventually? Like, does it get tall enough? No, they're not that tall. I mean, some of the biggest observers. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the biggest ones that I know of are like measured up to 30 meters tall. And that's a hydrothermal vent that's called Godzilla. It's actually right off the coast of where I am, or it was. (gasps) A portion of it got knocked over recently. So it's not as tall as it was before. But Oh my gosh. (laughs) Wow. Can I ask how you got interested in this kind of science and this kind of research? Yeah. So I, it's kind of generic. Like I was always very into ocean science documentaries and that I love that so much (laughs) (laughs) and that really spurred my interest in the ocean in general but I actually didn't take my first marine ecology course a marine science course until my last year of undergrad and in that yeah so this was a field that I had never had any experience with although I was always fascinated by the ocean I love to swim Mm -hmm. and scuba dive and do all the water sports wow But in my last year, when I took that marine ecology course, one of the final projects was to write a literature peer review on a topic of our choosing. And I knew that I wanted to write it on something deep sea. So I was just Googling deep sea animals, deep sea structures, and I came across hydrothermal vents. And as soon as I saw what a hydrothermal vent was and looked into papers explaining how they form and the ecosystems that they sustain, I was just hooked. Like it was just instantly something that was for me, I felt. (laughs) You know, I love that explanation that it started with just like, I've always loved the sea and documentaries because I feel like long-term listeners of the podcast, I feel like I've brought this up so much this semester, but it just keeps being relevant. I feel like I just like grew up being obsessed with the weather channel. I was like obsessed with tornadoes and I really, really, really wanted to be a meteorologist for a long time. I also spent most of my childhood in a planetarium and those were like My intros to science, I didn't end up in those sciences, but I just like hyper focused on like, I really thought I was going to be like a planet girl the rest of my life. Like (laughs) I was like mourning Pluto when it was no longer a planet, like I was unwell. And so I just relate to like young science girlies. Like I was there with you, not for like the sea. I don't like deep water, like oceans. I like it here but I get really anxious about things touching me I can't see. And fish love to do that. So love the idea of the sea, not for me. But I just like relate to the childhood, like science obsessions. Like, I hear you. I feel it. Yeah, glad to hear that. And sorry about Pluto and how that interacted <sighs> you know, with your, your state. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're still processing. So my research focuses on the most unexplored areas of the ocean containing the most potential for discovery. So I specialize in hydrothermal vent ecosystems 1,000 to 4,000 meters under the ocean surface. And I'm fascinated with everything to do with deep sea exploration, blue economy, and microbiology and seafloor mapping. So my current PhD research highlights an evident need for increased consideration of microbial genetic resource potential at hydrothermal vents. And also promotes a really interdisciplinary research and international cooperation concerning the resource potential, regulatory challenges, and environmental considerations of deep sea mining. So there's a lot it's that so, goes into it's it. So it's so cool, though, because and you mentioned you're by Vancouver. Is that right? Yeah, I'm on Vancouver Island. So I'm yeah. in Victoria. So I love that area of Canada. And I fell in love with Vancouver, which I know is not the same as Vancouver Island, but I was in Vancouver two years ago and I was obsessed with it. But it's interesting that you're there because you say deep sea and I immediately think of the Atlantic Ocean where like there's that deep crack 
down the middle. Oh, yeah. What? I don't know what her name is. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge? Yeah, the ridge. That, mm-hmm. her. <laughs> I feel like, are there a lot of vents there? There are, or is actually. It, yeah, yeah okay. there are a bunch of vents there. And I was actually supposed to be on a ship right now that was going to be there, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. But one of the thrusters on the ship was having some technical issues. So oh, yeah, you don't want that. Cruise, bump it down. So now I'm going out to sea in October for that. But. Oh, my God. That's so far away. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. But <laughs> I you... mean, it's kind of good because it gives me more time to prepare. Oh, fair. And you probably, like, <laughs> want to be on a ship that's working. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Very important. Being stranded at sea not so great that's awful so not everybody knows this but i do ask all of my guests one question you would ask yourself sometimes i bring it up sometimes i don't yours was really really good i said this before we started recording so i have to ask what is it like and this is exactly on what you just mentioned what is it like living on a deep sea exploration vessel and using remote submersibles did I say that word right? Submersibles? Yeah, submersibles. You said it perfectly. There was a lot of and, buh, 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 buh. and I that was my <laughs> lips were like not I couldn't feel anything. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you got there. Thank the you word so came. Much. <laughs> okay, I feel like here. would you get claustrophobic underwater? Like do you ever feel like you can't escape and you're going to drown? I mean, you're not no. literally under the I, like I, you're in a, a box, but this is so small. Yeah. I've never actually been in a manned submersible, so I've only used remote-operated vehicles, so they're (laughs) much better. Remote submersibles. Yeah, but I would never feel claustrophobic within a submersible. I mean, I could say that, but I've never actually been in one. You know what it is? You don't know until you're actually in there. Because, like, just a little bit underwater would be, like, fine, but, like, once you're in a submersible that, like, is hardcore counteracting pressure differences, it's, like, it's not even, like oh, I wouldn't make it up to the top if it broke. It would literally be like, I would implode before I would start floating. That's where it gets me. <laughs> That's just a little bit too close to death for me. I mean, at least it's quick, you know? <laughs> what? Right, because then it would be like, forget drowning. Have you ever thought about every particle of your body smashing in on itself at one time? That's real quick. <laughs> real quick. Instantaneous. You know, maybe it's a better way to go. Yeah, no thoughts, just bliss. No thoughts. Well, I mean, a moment of struggle and then bliss. But like, would you even register the struggle of it, you know? Yeah. Like you would just, done, quick. Done, like a blip. Like a blip, (laughs) truly. Well, and on that point, let's head into today's episode. incredible do you want me to finish oh yeah did you answer it yeah please do i mean we really i really got lost on like sudden death tell me all about (laughs) (laughs) but like honestly the deep sleep okay this is the other thing it made me think of how many people bring up the movie titanic because literally they're on yeah i'm sure all the time yeah all the time sorry funnily enough One of the deep sea research vessels that I was on, it's called Exploration Vessel Nautilus. And it's actually owned and operated by the Ocean Exploration Trust, which was founded by Dr. Robert Ballard, who is the guy who found the Titanic wreck. Yes. So it all comes full circle. But just to answer your question about what it's like living on these deep sea submersibles, it's incredible. It's fascinating. You're interacting with incredible people every day. You're interacting with these submersibles and getting up close to them. And these are giant Mm -hmm. robots. So they're just incredible feats of engineering, in in my opinion. Yeah. They're around 2,000 pounds. They're six feet tall and 11 feet wide. Wow. So just massive robots capable of diving 4,000 meters or lower under the ocean surface and just crushing it like in a truly. nutshell. And so yeah, how long are you usually on these boats like when you do a trip like that? Anywhere from two weeks to multiple months. Wow. Yeah. When I was on the Nautilus, I was on there for about 28 days. So it was about a month long stint. That's so cool. Yeah. But the ship that I'm going on in October is going to be 40 days, so it's going to be even longer. (laughs) Honestly, this all sounds so much more exciting that you're like, it's not a submarine. Not that, I mean, like, submarines are fine. It's fine. But I am so much less terrified for your well-being that you're, like, on a boat with air and sky. Exactly. We're well protected. And we actually have one of the most comfortable observatory decks. So beautiful. In my opinion, that I've ever seen. Because when the submersibles are in the ocean, scientists and the ROV pilots or the submersible pilots, 
they sit in the control room on the ship oh. and we're basically just surrounded by screens that display the robot's vitals and navigational information oh and also views from the HD cameras on the robot so we can see and control it in real time. I mean, there's no other way to put it than just super cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of giving me like the first Avatar vibes where like they always had eyes on everything. I mean, we're not going to talk about the problematic nature of that movie, but just the science also... <laughs> I'm getting off track, but I have to ask, do you name the submersibles? Like, do they have names? They do. So the it. one on Nautilus is named Hercules after ah! the Greek. Right. Was Hercules a Greek god? Yep. I think he, or a demigod, right? He was a Disney character. That's definitely like right. son of Zeus. Was he the son of? And Ooh, yeah, I'm not a Greek goddess girl. He was the son of Zeus. Somebody well, clearly neither one of us are. Yeah, actually, please come for us on Twitter. Just if you're a mythology person and we're wrong, just come scream at us online. And thanks in advance for all the engagement. <laughs> a little plug. Yeah, literally, just just scream at us. No, I think yeah, he's definitely a Greek god. Definitely, I feel like he's a demigod. I think though, you might be right. Reason. Do they sing about? him being a demigod in the disney songs yeah in the songs and i love yes. those songs by the muses like the yes. opening song that's my favorite incredible i listen to it more than i'd like to admit <laughs> in public on this podcast. no it's really important i love that it's it's like character pieces it's like personality bits okay <laughs> i got really blown away and taken away by where we went with that and so i want to make sure i rein in my adhd and we hit today's topics but it really does resonate with me what we're going to talk about today because today's big topic and what you submitted to chat about was like the intersection of art and science and the importance of that within the research space but also within our personal lives and I really want to quote what you said in your interest form because it was like really profound the first time I read it don't feel embarrassed I just like really liked it <laughs> you said as you can see it's literally copy and paste it and I quote Science cannot exist without art, as artful imagination is the very essence of the creative aspect science relies on. Similarly, art cannot exist in the absence of science. As the father of quantum theory, Max Planck, once said, the pioneer scientist must have a vivid, intuitive imagination, for new ideas are not generated by deduction, but by artistically creative imagination. The purpose of science is to understand the world and create within the world. One cannot create without creativity. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Who are you? <laughs> what the heck? Amazing. Uh, Thank you. That's I like how to sit and stare at the wall for a while after I read that. I was like, oh, fuck. That is uh, those my heart onto the page, essentially. That's yeah. My personal philosophy. So added with a quote, courtesy of Max Planck. <laughs> Honestly, like, I feel it so deeply. It's interesting because, and I think I've mentioned this before. So I was originally going to go to college for film. I spent all of my high school years making films, studying film. Like I was really big into like creation. I wanted to direct. And I think it's really funny and interesting now that I'm getting a PhD in psychology because in a very similar thread, but totally different way by thinking about the way the mind works and the way humans behave and all of that and coming up with research ideas and pursuing that and thinking of different ways to look at human behavior it's like another way of that same creative thread that like film seemed to tap for me I just like couldn't mm -hmm. afford film school and decided I was too poor for that gamble but I love research because it is creative because I get to sit and think and let my mind go places with science all day and it's interesting too like I think about my personal endeavors outside of science and how creative they end up being like this podcast or like I'm currently writing a book like little things like that and it's like for fun a fun book like the creative part of who I am is so important to the science part of who I am. Yeah, they're inherently linked. And I think that's just due to the fact that almost every aspect of our lives is a combination of science and art, like down to the cars we drive, the buildings that we live and work in, and also the entertainment that we consume that became very important to us during the pandemic, oh, yeah. right? So all of these things are kind of medleys of the ideas and the work of scientists and artists yeah. blended and brought to life. Yeah. So. so and then how does this interact in your life, like with your research, your personal life? Like, how does this all come together to be something that you are so passionate about? 
It's funny that you say you would have gone to school for film if you didn't go into the psychology stream, because I've also obviously always been drawn to both science and art. And mostly I contributed to these passions equally up until the end of high school, where I veered with the more practical choice. And I chose science and I kind of muted that artistic side of myself, at least Mm, professionally. mm But if I hadn't completed post-secondary schooling in science, I would have gone in for fine art. So my imaginative scientist brand is really a rebirth of that artistic side and a reincorporation of it into my professional sphere of science. And personally, concerning my PhD research, so I use 3D modeling and mapping in my work, and that's very visual So it taps into both of those passions, the science and the arts simultaneously. And using 3D modeling and mapping can be a unique and powerful way to combine both scientific and artistic interests because those technologies essentially allow for the creation of detailed visual representations of complex data. And that can be used to better understand and communicate research findings. Oh, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And and I personally use those tools to pull the mysteries of the deep sea up onto land. So I'm like bringing the ocean directly into my office uh, by turning multi-beam bathymetry data into these large-scale relief maps of hydrothermal vent fields (gasps) and also turning that remote-operated submersible video footage of hydrothermal events into 3D models of a hydrothermal vent, like right there on my computer screen that I can zoom in on and rotate in 3D space. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, you just made me think of, so I don't know if you were like, I loved museums growing up and what you're describing sounds like something that if it was put into a museum, like to teach kids like what the vents were and it was so visually appealing. It's like, that sounds like something a child would see and fall in love with science with. When I think about some of the reasons I fell in love with like the planetarium and the planets or like different things, it was the way I got to visually see space and experience that visually in addition to the science piece of it. So when I'm hearing you talk about like the way that this is 3D modeled and whatever, like I was like literally visualizing even though I know it's not exactly what you're doing, I'm like, no, I could see this like in a science museum that kids are going to and learning about and falling in love with science. And why, when we think about science communication, why the visual pieces of that are really crucial for like reasons above and beyond just speaking to the science community, right? But like the general public, I just think that's really, I don't know, I was a museum girl, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're exactly right because the use of these tools, it just, it really enhances the researcher's ability to communicate findings to a wider audience, like audience that may not even be in the science or academic sphere. And then also just makes it easier and more accessible to understand. Yeah. So you said fine art would have been what you did. What was like your medium? Did you draw, sculpt? Like what was your thing? Painting. Painting and drawing. Yeah. Painting, drawing, a little bit of ceramics as well. (laughs) But I never quite got the wheel down. I'm still working on my wheel technique. (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting because I am terrible at drawing and painting. And I know that like, oh, it's practice. Anyone could like get better at it. Not me. (laughs) I don't think I could. I don't think I'm the worst, but like me and art. They don't, it doesn't, Does I it can't. but I like me and creativity totally, but paint, I don't know her. <laughs> there are many ways to be creative. As Thank you mentioned you earlier, this, this podcast is creativity at work. Right. This is so much more comfortable for me than painting, interestingly enough. So do you still paint in your personal time then? Yes, I do all the time. I paint and I draw oh and when I get the chance to go down to a pottery studio, I actually work on that wheel technique. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Now, do you sell your paintings? Do you like put them in art shows? Like how how deep? I, how deep are you? I haven't started selling my artwork yet, but I'm working mm. on creating prints that people can buy of my paintings and of oh. my illustrations. <laughs> I love that. Is it going to be like an in-person thing? Are we talking like an Etsy shop situation? I'm like... thinking Etsy shop situation. Yeah. Online, online base. And maybe Amazing. in person as well. I mean, Victoria has a lot of small art scenes here and there. A lot of little markets yeah. I could set up shop in. <laughs> well, if and when that Etsy shop comes to fruition, let me know. And I'm happy to shout you out because I love when grad students especially like follow a passion like that I love to be like you can have hobbies you can love things and still do science in grad school so I'd be happy to like scream about that for a while yeah well I'll be happy to share that when it comes about yes (laughs) what do you like to paint 
I love to paint surrealist scenes. So I really like combining a lot of movement with... Okay, so basically what I do is I take concepts, things that we see in our everyday lives, and then kind of turn that around into something new. So I can paint Mm. a fox with like mushrooms sprouting out of its body and use that as a way to convey how mushrooms compose bodies after postmortem or after death, right? Oh, so it's, yeah, I love that. Well, there's a lot of painting that I do that's just for fun, but for the most part, I try to tie my painting in with science communication and my illustrations in with science communication. So any piece that I create is accompanied by a uh, scientific explanation of a certain concept or idea or just a promotion of a cool science company. I love that. It sounds like there's like always a deeper meaning, even if it's like not a super deep concept, just the fact that like there's sort of an underlying, there's a reason for everything you put into a painting. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So something else that you talked about when you had reached out to be a guest on the podcast is that you're really, really passionate about the promotion of STEAM, which is science, technology, education, art, and medicine over STEM which I have seen more and more online that people are talking about like steam is so crucial because how crucial art is. Tell me a little bit more about where that passion came from and like just about this idea of like steam education over STEM education. So essentially, I guess it came from on a personal scale, it came from being frustrated with having to leave that artistic side of myself behind to pursue science wholly Mm -hmm. or feeling like I had to for a little while. And that's why I promote STEAM over STEM because it's considered more important than STEM because it places a greater emphasis on the integration of arts and design principles into the learning process. Mm -hmm. And then that integration Mm -hmm. can lead to a more well-rounded and holistic education. So one of the main advantages of STEAM education is that it encourages creativity and innovation, of course. So by incorporating those arts and design concepts, students are exposed to different ways of thinking and problem solving, which can lead to more diverse and unconventional solutions. And then the arts also help students develop important skills like critical thinking, communication, collaboration, all of which are essential for a success in any field. But the final point that I want to make is that STEAM education can also help to make STEM subjects more engaging and accessible to a wider range of students. Because when you're incorporating art and design, you expose students to a wider range of learning styles. And then you also find new ways for the students to connect with and understand those complex scientific and mathematical concepts that can be really daunting for somebody who may not be as scientifically or mathematically inclined off the bat, you know, it still encourages them to be involved in STEM. Absolutely. I mean, you said so many things that I could go on so many tangents. I mean, one of them, I just think about the fact that like, we need in general, more diverse voices in the science spaces. And this encourages that across all people. I also feel like it's really interesting when you were talking about it being more accessible. I feel like, and this is me personally, the more I tap into my creative side, the better my science is, even if those things are happening in parallel, like not necessarily creativeness in my science space, but just like in my personal life. And I think, I don't know if this is like a, you know, ADHD neurodivergent thing. I mean, a lot of us in the sciences are neurodivergent in some way, but for me too, I realized that diving into art in some way, whether it be a podcast, whether it be a crochet sometimes, like whatever thing, I also regulate myself better so that when I approach my science, I'm like back at a better baseline. So like in addition to the fact that in our science spaces, it is like increasing voices, it is diversifying our own thoughts and ideas and just like enriching accessibility of science and just like the engagement of science. In my personal life, I find that like when I I wanted to say water that part of myself like a plant, but that was a weird, I don't know, that's what came. Nourish? But like when I nurture that. Nurture. Yeah, nurture, nurture nourish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I feed that part of my soul, I feel like it translates into my research. And I think that it's important we balance the logical and the creative. And if we don't, it also leads to burnout. Yeah, which we really want to avoid because that is critical within grad school. Critical. And I think the reason why when you engage in those creative sides of yourself, your science increases as well is because both science and art are fundamentally concerned with the exploration and discovery of the unknown. So they're really attempts to understand and describe the world around us. Those objects of inquiry are different 
And the subjects and methods have different traditions and the intended audiences are different, but the motivations and goals are fundamentally the same. So in science, you're exploring and you're trying to understand something that's out in the external world. But within art, the exploration is more internal. It's like a personal journey. So with those mm-hmm. both being exploration based and feeding off of each other, it kind of makes sense as to why our artistic side inspires our scientific side and sometimes vice versa. Absolutely. You know what this reminds me of too? So I am somebody who like, sometimes when I lose my mind, I decide to like, run. I used to run half marathons, but then COVID. And it reminds me of the fact that like, if anyone who's listening is an athlete, they always tell you like, if you're a runner, you can't just run every day. Like you have to do something else like biking or walking. And when you do those things, even though they feel unrelated, it actually improves your running to bike once in a while, to walk once in a while. And it kind of reminds me of this of like, even when I am exercising my like creative muscles outside of science, it's almost like I get into the practice of tapping into that part of myself so that when I'm in like the science research space, it gets tapped into almost more automatically. Like my brain just doesn't stay totally within this like narrow pathway, but I actually will naturally start to like I don't know, branch out with my ideas. I just like, I really love this idea. And I know for you, you've mentioned a few times the imaginative scientist and sort of this like brand that you're creating with that. Tell me a little bit more about that and just this blending between science and visual artistry. So the imaginative scientist is my brand. I love a girl with a brand. (laughs) So beyond academic pursuits, I am a science communicator and an avid visual artist. So I'm the founder of The Imaginative Scientist, which is a science communication brand that blends traditional outreach and artistry to produce an audience-first approach that engages, invites, and inspires curiosity. So in addition to traditional science outreach work, which of course is largely based in deep sea research and exploration, I also aim to promote science communication through visual art by blending science and artistry to create those impactful, engaging pieces that focus on making science more accessible to wider audiences. So essentially, I just want to make science exciting and share my passions with the world in an enthusiastic and knowledgeable way. And I also love showing people that scientists have multifaceted personalities and many interests. Yes. Yeah, very important. And opening up areas of science that are almost always really niche and secretive, like the deep sea world. Because essentially, from what I've seen with my peers in grad school, what we study is extraordinary and what we're doing is really innovative and we should share it with more people and share it in a way that more people can understand and appreciate and interact with it. 100%. I have to ask, what is your favorite thing that you've done in combining those things or like a favorite project or maybe something like you're doing with that blending now that, I don't know, you just feel like comes from the heart you know what's your favorite thing you've done I think right now my favorite thing is my illustrations because what I do with that is I essentially okay so scientists usually love a bunch of complex things and a lot of jargon right yeah but yes that complexity (laughs) all the time but that complexity can be really impeding to efficient communication and of course efficient science communication has the power to impact politics and healthcare and policy agendas that contribute to both benefiting society and like the entire environment that surrounds us as a whole. So if you can get general audiences to really understand the science behind why something like global warming is damaging, instead of just covering it with a blanket statement of dangerous, then they're more likely to act with the power that they hold, which is numbers and political voting. Yeah. I find much of that comes down to simplifying our ideas strategically. So there's a really fine balance between being detailed and being accessible. Mm -hmm. And it's important to strike that right balance. So with my art, what I'm essentially aiming to do is change the way in which scientific concepts are regularly communicated. So I'm making it more palatable to those who aren't in science or to other scientists who aren't in the specific field. Because as we know, there's also a lot of disconnect between scientific fields, not just outside of science entirely. So I um, employ a combination of surrealism, expressionism, and modernism, depending on the medium I'm using and the audience I'm addressing. But with my illustrations, I find that they're really efficient forms of communication because you can say something with an illustration that would be almost impossible to say with words Mm. or would take you much longer. 
So it's just very efficient and they're very engaging for audiences in a way that's much more difficult to accomplish with text alone. And this leads into how I use illustrations and text. So this is a very roundabout way of getting into the meat of it. No, I love it. I love it. (laughs) How the sausage um, gets made. Yeah, (laughs) but it's really important to use both texts sparingly and strategically, I find. So I believe that images need to complement text, but they shouldn't take completely away from the place of text when the message can be strengthened with both words. So written words combined with art can probably do the best job of conveying that concept. Mm -hmm. So before earlier, I mentioned like I would have a piece that has giant mushrooms sprouting from a fox's body. Right. So That's something that I would illustrate and it kind of looks like something that you would see in Alice in Wonderland or the movie Annihilation. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's a really good one. Okay. (laughs) On the list. Put it on the list. Yeah. And then it's accompanied by an explanation of how mushrooms decompose our bodies after death through the process of microremediation, which is a mushroom's ability to clean up toxic contaminants in the environment. Mm. And I think that answers your question. Totally. Yeah, I just use the image to draw the audience in and make science inviting. And then I provide the written portion that smacks them in the face with science if they would want, if they choose to be smacked in the face, you know? (laughs) I really love everything that you're doing in this space because I'm just somebody who is so visual. In fact, I didn't actually enjoy reading as a way to absorb science until very recently, ironically, when I started ADHD meds. But on the topic of accessibility, (laughs) I react so much more positively with a deeper understanding when something is visual. So like, this is a great example for grad school. Like when my PI emails me instructions for something in coding, I'm like, I am reading the words and I know what those words mean. (laughs) But if I try to do it, I cannot. Like, just send me a picture of your code. You don't even need to send me an explanation and I can do it. So hearing that you talk about illustration being an efficient way, I'm like right there with you. I'm like, absolutely. Oh, we're going to be cheesy. Like a picture says a thousand words. Okay. haha, Yeah. But like <laughs> it does. It does. It does. It really does. At every level of scientist. All right. I want to get some advice from you. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for students listening to this who maybe they're like us, right? They have like these, I guess everyone has creative juices, whether they're tapping into it or not. But what would you say to those listening who are like, wow, I really feel like I need to start incorporating more art or more creativity into my science. What might that look like for them? And, and maybe like what even career streams do that, that people might be able to be aspiring to? I would say the first step is maybe Think about what types of creative expression you're most drawn to, Mm. and then think about what areas of science you're most drawn to. And then that'll give you your roadmap for like the two areas of that creative expression and that scientific minded search for new discoveries that you can combine together. But there are a lot of career streams that incorporate both science and art. And these encompass things like medical illustration and Mm. game design, data visualization, architecture architecture, of course, even animation as well, and biomedical engineering. So those are just a few examples. Yeah, but you covered like the whole gamut. That was great. It was like the whole, (laughs) and then everything in between. (laughs) The possibilities are endless. And yes, as technology evolves, there are going to be even more new opportunities that arise for combining art and science in new and exciting ways. So for those students listening, I guess, I'm interested in seeing what you do as technology (gasps) evolves. Yeah, I would love to hear from people who listen to this episode and maybe think of new ways that they're even like thinking of incorporating creativity or like some sort of art into their science. I also think like brainstorming could be helpful. Like I just think about the fact that if I stayed in the realm of what I would classically call art, like painting, drawing, I might think I'm not a creative person because I'm trash at those things. Yeah. And so I would say like brainstorming, like for me, it ends up being media in this way of like the podcasting and conversation or like I used to do film. So <laughs> we joked beforehand that I'm now TikToking against my will. But <laughs> as much as I joke about that, like I find that an incredibly easy medium for me to make content on and they perform really well. So I'm like, OK, I'm good at this, even though I'm like, oh, I finally gave in like begrudgingly. It's a medium I feel super comfortable with. So brainstorm what creative quote unquote means to you and like what art means to you because another example I could not for the life of me create music if I tried like I play instruments but I could not develop song like me a music theory 
we're not, we don't, she doesn't. We're in the same boat with that for sure. Wish I could, cannot. Wish I could, cannot. So like another (laughs) stream of like creativity. I mean, it makes me think of, I don't know if you follow her, Raven the Science Maven. Oh, yes, I do. Science rap. Yeah, she was on my podcast two years, year and a half ago. Incredible. Does science rap with communication? Could never. I could never. (laughs) But like another great example of a scientist who incorporates art and totally different from how you do it. But I don't know. I think we just need to get creative. It's so fun to watch people do things that you can't, you know? So. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then I'm like even more impressed. Like you said painting and I'm like, you are immediately cooler (laughs) than I am. And I also, like, intertwining, well, I think that you're cooler than I am because you're very good at podcasting. No, you're cooler (laughs) than I am. (laughs) Let's fight. (laughs) But, like, right? I mean, we get so impressed and it, like, it engages us with the topic because we're just, like, impressed by art. We just get it. I feel like we grew up as science girls (laughs) now doing art with our science. We get it. We have a connection. And also, like, beyond what I've done with my brand, even intertwining these passions lead to even cooler interdisciplinary collaborations. Because I actually Mm -hmm. got asked to be a science consultant for a survival-based deep-sea video game that's being developed. And Shut up. Yeah. It's super cool. But uh, I can't go too into depth because I did sign a non-disclosure agreement. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) You know, no big deal. Can't talk about it. (laughs) It's so hard. I wish I could talk about it. No, that's fucking cool. That is amazing. Well, I can't talk about that. I can plug another deep sea video game that came out (gasps) last December. That you were a part of? No, it was not a part of this one, unfortunately. Oh, I was like, how many? What is this like? (laughs) We can't. We're like 40 minutes in and you're now just bringing up like your video game consultant job. Like. I'm sorry. Rewind. <laughs> what is the other game, though? <laughs> it's called Sub ROV. So it allows players to pilot those remote submersibles in the deep sea and explore the oceans themselves. It's super cool. It's on Steam. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We love Steam. Steam is a great platform. I play Sims on Steam and Planet Coaster. I've never. Oh, is that the one where you build the roller coasters? And- yes. Oh, my God. It's like Roller Coaster Tycoon, but it's like the now version because that was from like the early 2000s. It's another way I like to be creative. I like to build roller coaster parks, <laughs> keep the guests alive. Very important. Very good use of my energy. But I have one more question for you before we move on to final thoughts. I feel like just like there's probably a ton of people listening who I feel like are really similar to us. They've always been creative and, hey, how do I integrate this with science? I feel like there are people listening to this realizing that like, hey, I don't have any creative streams in my personal life. Or I always felt like probably how I view you with painting, like that's so other to me that I'm like so unfamiliar with it. How do you recommend those people start exploring creativity? Like, how do you know when you like something creative? Or how do you know when you've tapped into that, like, muscle or that space in your mind for, like, joy, maybe? I'd say the easiest way is to think back to when you were a kid. Like, when you had all the time in the world to do whatever you wanted and when you were more creative because unfortunately as we grew up we usually get less creative with time but what did you really enjoy did you enjoy making up dance choreographies with your friends or your siblings did you enjoy questioning or interviewing your family members did you enjoy more visual things like painting like me before capitalism (laughs) ruined you what did you enjoy yeah (laughs) Yeah, what what really ignited a spark within yourself yeah. at the source? Yeah, this because we all were creative. Absolutely, when it all before it all before went before it all went wrong. <laughs> you know, that's funny. This would be the point where maybe I would plug my uh, 2008, 2009, 200 plus video YouTube channel to say what I did as a child, but I'm not. We're not revealing that because. Um, <laughs> Wow, that's just a can we're not opening publicly. But yeah, like do what you liked as a child. Am I right? (laughs) Just leaving that buried. We're just going to like let you know that happened. Okay, we all made music videos. Not everyone made 200 plus, but we all did it. What? 200. Oh, yeah. It's okay. I'm not judging. I mean, a little bit. You caught me by surprise, but I'm not judging. Hundreds. And like it was 2008, 2009, right? So like Jason Derulo, early Justin Bieber. Telephone by Lady Gaga. I mean, and I was like a little bit emo. So it was like I did a bunch of like pop punk, a day to remember. I mean, I was deep. Weren't we all though at that time? I really thought I was so hard. So many photos that I do not want research. Like for Halloween, I like dyed my hair black and like put pig streaks in it. And I was like, I'm the real me. I mean, I just, it was so much. (laughs) 
but you were the it girl in that moment for that for time, me i was i don't think anyone ever i don't think other people looked at me and they were like well that's a choice and for me i'm like i'm everything i'm hot peak i'm peaking and on that let's head into final thoughts for the episode as a reminder for those listening and for you i always like to do final thoughts at the end because i talk about a million things in my episodes i cannot speak in straight lines and i like people to walk away from the episode with like some coherent idea of what we want them to remember from our chat like what are the big takeaways what are the big themes so take as much time as you need to think about them if you need to but give me i don't know like a couple of final thoughts you have for today's episode okay I guess let me think about it. Yes, take as much time. I feel like I don't mean to pressure people. It's not like that big of a question, but yes. What do you want people to remember from your episode? Well, off the bat, I want people to understand and remember that science can't exist without art. Art cannot exist without science. Using both of those in tandem, like combining your passions and maintaining your hobbies and passions throughout grad school can really serve as a source of inspiration and creativity and balance, which are all essential for the completion of your research and overall well-being and also avoiding burnout, like we touched on a little bit earlier. I guess both scientists and artists, they really strive to see the world in new ways and communicate their own personal visions. And when they're successful, the rest of us suddenly see the world differently and our truth is fundamentally changed. So they're way more intertwined than we realize and science and art have way more similarities than we often realize. Wow, absolutely. First off, your answer was incredible. And the whole time I'm sitting here, like the first final thought that I have is that I want everyone to know that the earth farts into the ocean. And I'm like, that's not <laughs> what we should remember. Well, also that. Also, also hydrothermal vents are very cool. <laughs> okay. I really feel like they are though. I'm not even going to lie to you. When you were talking about that, I'm like, I get it. They are. I love when it's a topic I know nothing about. Like my friend Sophie was on the podcast a few weeks ago and she was talking about like sun flares and I'm like, I don't care. By the end of it, I'm literally like space weather. Like absolutely. (laughs) Like that's how I felt after you were talking. So number one, first takeaway, the earth farts. Do not forget. Yes. But I do feel like my other takeaways is just like realizing how close and parallel science and art run together and intersect with each other, which is really what you spoke on. And I think really the big takeaway, but I think my other would be just to remind people, even if you don't think that whatever science you're doing has a creative component to it, it does. It likely just means you're not tapping into it in some way. I would really stress to listeners to think about the ways that you could either enrich your personal life to be a little bit more creative in order to like influence your science life or just think about ways that science and creativity are already interacting within your field. Realizing that the gap between the science community and the public is huge and that in many ways art is the answer, which we didn't directly talk about, but it's kind of like a culmination of like all of the topics we discussed. Even like another broader thing we didn't directly touch on, but it's like literally the point of this entire episode. It's if we can do science all day long, but if the public doesn't understand what we're doing, it really doesn't make a splash at the end of the day. We just continue to be screaming into our own void, Mm -hmm. which is fine. But I think that we're of a generation that wants to make a splash and wants to make a difference and bridging to the public is necessary in order to do that. And hey, art. Great way to do it. Fucking fantastic way. Yeah. Great. Fucking fantastic. Whichever. Science must create actionable change. (laughs) That's what we need. (laughs) You're just like hitting me with more (laughs) profound quotes. That's great. I just feel like I love that you suggested this episode topic. It really, really genuinely speaks to me so much. And as somebody who used to be a therapist and decided not to do it anymore because it was like really stressful, a lot of people didn't understand why I preferred research. And I feel like what we have talked about today explains it. For me, it is like total creative outlet in an intellectual space. And to me, that is like everything. Mm -hmm. So thank you for suggesting it. This was fantastic. Well, thank you for having me. This is actually the first time I've spoken about my personal philosophy on science and art (sighs) this much in depth. This is a Dear Grad Student podcast exclusive. (laughs) Oh my God, literally stop me to cry. Literally stop. (laughs) Exclusive. You heard it here first, folks. I love when people come and talk deep about these topics because I feel like you see a lot of scientists doing art, but like there is a deeper philosophy to it that I think if more people understood, they'd be like, wait a second, 
I do this. I can do this. And hey, then we have more people, as you said, creating actionable change. Is that exactly? Yeah. And you should do this as well, because some of the greatest minds in science were inherently creative. That's right. We need to continue combining those things. Yeah. And my last point, if you're feeling peer pressured, we are peer pressuring you. Do it. Yes. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Really healthy. Really healthy. Maranke, I want to remind people where they can find you on social media, where they can find you online, where they can connect with you. So give another shout out to all your social media. Another shout out. My website is MaranqueHarris.com. My social media is at imaginative sci. So the word imaginative and then S-C-I. And then I'm also on Twitter at Maranke Harris. And those are all the spaces you can find me in. Amazing. At soon to be an Etsy shop one day. Yes. Yeah. Soon to be an Etsy yeah. shop. You'll Keep an hear eye it here. My prints. <laughs> second or third. You'll hear it here. I'll be here to shout it out. But of course, everyone who's listening, you know, everything is going to be linked in the episode description below. Maranke, thank you for being on this podcast. Like, thank you so much for being here. I had a lot of fun. I don't know if you did. You don't have to say if you didn't, but I had a I lot did. of fun. I did. Okay, good. You can lie. It's okay. <laughs> reviews no, only. No, I actually like, did. Actually, like, I'm so glad. Secretly, this is the best podcast I've been on so far. So stop. <laughs> stop. You're making me nervous. <laughs> okay. Well, with that. <laughs> So yeah, I had a great time. <laughs> can't wait for TikTok <laughs> to see me lose my mind. Well, to everyone listening, if you're able to support the show, you can do so at Patreon at patreon.com slash deargradstudent. You can also keep the Dear Grad Student team caffeinated at buymeacoffee.com slash deargradstudent, where you can make a one-time donation to keep us up and running. And listeners, thank you all for continuing to listen to the podcast that I started during quarantine. I will talk to you all in a fortnight. Fare thee well and have a great two weeks. Look at you listening through the outro. I hope you loved this episode and are sticking around to hear the next. Share this podcast with literally everyone you know. In the meantime, you can find everything related to the podcast at DearGradStudent.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DearGradStudent, on Instagram at DearGradStudentPod, and if you want to connect with me online, you can find me on Twitter at Alana underscore Gloger. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore G-L-O-G-E-R. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash deargradstudent or follow the link in the episode description. And merch! Who doesn't love merch? Podcast merch and more can be found at deargradstudent.com slash merch. If you loved what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your other favorite shows. Today's episode was made possible by the Dear Grad Student team members, Coral Arroyo, William Oda, Aubrey Tingler, Fishel Thucker, and Nicole Coates. You can learn more about them at deargradstudent.com about. As a reminder, all resources and links mentioned in today's episode can be found in the description. And until next time... Warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana.